for 30 plus years. I've seen every type of child grow up. Instead of giving me what I wanted, she gave me what I needed, which was truth. Don't let emotions win. Let truth win. Do your very best, and you should have a lot of fun while you do it. And the better you get at something, the more fun you're going to have at something. You moms and dads are wired with everything you need to be a parent to a great kid. Welcome to Parenting Great Kids. This is episode number 118, and I'm your host, Dr. Meg Meeker. Today, my guest is Lisa Qualls. Lisa is the author of The Connected Parent, Real-Life Strategies for Building Trust and Attachment. She and her husband, Russ, are the parents of 12, you heard me, 12 children by birth and adoption, and sometimes more through foster care. Lisa is the creator of the One Thankful Mom website and a popular speaker at events for adoptive and foster parents. She's also the co-founder of The Adoption Connection, a podcast and resource site for adoptive moms. Lisa mentors and encourages adoptive parents so they can find courage and hope in their journeys of loving their children well. As always, I will share my points to ponder so you can start using them right away. And parents, please remember, don't just download the episodes, click subscribe because I need you to join my parenting revolution and every new episode will automatically show up in your subscribe list. I'd love for you to write us a review on iTunes and let us know what you think. Also, the PGK podcast is not only on iTunes, but it's available in the Google Play Store and on Stitcher. So no matter where you get your podcast, subscribe today. Parents, do you get sick of hearing your kids argue or not listening to you? Or do you feel that sometimes life at home is sort of out of control? I get it and I can help. Check out my free webinar on my website, meekerparenting.com. Let's help bring more order and calm and more fun back into your relationships with your kids. So parents, thanks for listening. This is episode number 118. Stay with us. I want you now to listen in on a conversation that I had with Lisa Qualls. I know you're really going to enjoy it. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's truly an honor. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I, whenever I am talking with uh, people who have written books like this, The Connected Parent, uh, Real Life Strategies for Building Trust and Attachment, I like to dive into your brain and pull out as much great information as I can because there's so much that I want to learn from you that our audience is going to want to learn from you because you really are an extraordinary woman. You wrote a lot of this book out of your personal experience. You have eight children by birth and you adopted four kids. Now that makes anybody gasp when we think of it. I raised four kids and now we have um, grandchildren, but it, it's exhausting. Can We're going to talk about adoption at the beginning of our program, and then we'll get to attachment of um, biologic children later. You describe in the book some difficulties that you had with adoptive and foster children, particularly as it came to attachment. Can you 
describe why attachment in those early years with a child are so important as far as their relationships later in life? Yes, well, attachment really forms the foundation for all of our future relationships. Attachment is built uh, very strongly in that first year of life when a child, a baby, expresses a need and that need is met by their caregiver. And this happens thousands of times. The baby cries, the mother comes and picks the baby up, the baby's hungry, the baby's fed, the baby's cold, they're wrapped in a blanket, and their needs are met over and over and over again. And so the whole lesson of that first year of life in terms of attachment is I can trust. Well, when a child does not experience having their needs met, then, and they cry and nobody comes and they're hungry and they're not fed, then they develop a strong distrust of the world, of people. And Truly, their, their brain chemistry is altered by this, mm-hmm. by these early traumas of their needs not being met. And so all of that affects their attachment. They don't develop what we call secure attachment because of these losses and these early traumas. And that goes on to affect all of us. Our attachment to our original, our very first parents um, affects us throughout our lives. And how long does the building of this attachment take? You said the first year of life, but it continues into the second, third, and fourth year as well. Is that correct? Yes. And I I think attachment, well, I think there's a hopeful message in this in that attachment can be healed and children can become securely attached even at older ages. I think attachment can also be harmed, you know? So yes, it's, I think it's, somewhat of a lifelong process, especially for a child who has not had secure attachment. If they join a family through adoption or foster care and they begin building it even much later in life, they can develop secure attachment. Lisa, we've got parents out there who um, have adopted children already of different ages and parents who are thinking of of adoption. Is there an age that's best, if you can choose, to adopt a child? I mean, is it better from birth, when they're one? Obviously, you know, the earlier the better. Um, but is is there a time when if attachment doesn't form, it's really hard to um, for a child to learn to reattach, for instance, if they're five or six or seven or even ten? Well, I do think it can become more difficult as children have experienced a longer period of time of not having their needs met, not having secure attachment. I think it can become increasingly difficult. However, I do think it's possible. Mm -hmm. And children who are harmed in relationship can also heal in relationship. So yes, perhaps it is easier if a child is very young, although we do know that being separated from their first parents is a trauma in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And so even children adopted as newborns can experience some challenges at some point in terms of attachment. But, um, you know, we adopted, our children came to us at five months, 20 months, five and a half and 10 and a half. And so we really experienced a broad range of ages within our own children. And I've come to somewhat of an understanding that when children are significantly older, especially if they're 
pre-puberty, if they're moving toward becoming a teenager. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert. But in my experience, sometimes those children, we may not be able to form that secure attachment. But what we can do is we can bring so much healing into their lives that we set the foundation for them to have secure attachment in their future with their spouses and with their children. So it may not look the same as the attachment we'd form with a young child, but it can still be really good. Great. So even if you have a child who is five or eight or 10 and had a really rough start and never was allowed to attach, I'm thinking in the old Soviet Union, um, been doing this many years and, and, and saw some children come over at seven or eight or nine. And these were kids who basically were in a crib on their back the first year and a half, two years of life. A bottle was stuck in their mouth. And that was really their, the interaction that they had with humans. Um, nothing was safe. Life wasn't safe. It, they, di- they didn't even bother crying after a while because nobody was going to come. So when you have a child that's that deprived emotionally and has no attachment at all, and then they come to you, what are some of the issues and problems that parents can expect to to have? Well, I think a lot of children who have not had really, they have no foundation of secure attachment, you know, they may exhibit some really challenging behaviors. And we definitely experience that particularly with one of our daughters, these children have such a deep distrust of people and of the world that their brains have been wired to be or rewired from how they should have been to be very hypervigilant, to be very, uh, they can become, they can appear really independent because they, they just have not been able to have any of their own, their needs met by anyone else. So they've learned to become these survivors. They may um, have very out of control, uh, what we would call a tantrum in the adoption world, we might call a rage because the child can be so quickly dysregulated that it can become very, very big and they don't have the internal skills to calm and regulate. They may hoard food because they've been so deprived. Um, I mean, there are any numbers. Sometimes kids can have significant issues with bathrooming. I mean, all kinds of things can happen. Um, and some of those are very hard to heal. But again, I think by the grace of God mm-hmm. and using all the best skills we have, we can just do our best to bring our children into as much healing as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about your your personal experience because, you know, I've seen it in a lot of the patients that I've worked with with, with adoptive kids. You had particular trouble with one of your daughters um, really acting out, and you say that it caused you to feel guilty as a mom. And you just felt like I was a terrible mom. I I, I don't know what to do. And a lot of parents, I, I think of adoptive kids feel if I just pour on a, not, a lot of love and I nurture them and I hold them and I meet their needs, then everything will turn around. So if you wouldn't mind, talk to us about your experience with your daughter and how you came through that. Well, we had been parents for 20 years when we adopted our children from Ethiopia. So we really felt that we were very experienced, and we were. We were very experienced at parenting the children who had been born to us. We did a lot of preparation. You know, we went through training and all kinds of things before our kids came home. And 
I don't know that anything could have quite prepared us for the depth of our daughter's struggles. She was a very, very harmed little girl. And I used to say it was like a river of fear was running through her veins. And Mm -hmm. the thing about fear in these children is that it comes out looking like anger and looking like out of control behavior when really it's deep, deep fear in their core. And so with her, she was very quickly what we would call dysregulated. The smallest thing Mm -hmm. would throw her completely into these rages that would go on for long periods of time. And when she came home and we were experiencing this tumult, I mean, it, it really threw our whole family into crisis because our other children had never seen Mm -hmm. anything like this. Their home had been very safe, very secure, very stable. And all of a sudden it felt like a war zone. Mm -hmm. And I can remember crying a lot, (laughs) praying a lot, wondering what we should do and why it was all going so wrong. And if we had really heard the Lord, why was it turning out like this, Mm -hmm. you know? And it took us a long time to find help, but we did find good help. We learned a lot more about what we would call connected and therapeutic parenting Mm -hmm. and began applying all of those skills. But it was not easy at all. Mm -hmm. And it took a huge investment of our time and energy in order to persevere with parenting her in the way that she needed. What kind of behaviors were you seeing in her and how old was she when you started seeing them? Well, she was five and a half before she came home. And to be honest, when we met her in Ethiopia, within, I'd say, an hour, we knew that things were mm-hmm. going to be difficult. We we didn't, I mean, I think I was very hopeful, like, you know, if when we just get her home yeah. and we feed her and we take good care of her and give her so much love and affection, it's all going to be okay. And I think a lot of adoptive parents are not prepared for the long long road of healing. This does not happen in a year or two years. It's a long, long road. And with her, she was such a survivor and adorable. I mean, if you could see how cute she was, you'd be just amazed. She was beautiful, beautiful child. But she had learned that to protect herself, she had to be in control. Mm -hmm. And so in the orphanage, she was a child who could jump the highest, sing the loudest, smile the biggest, like she knew how to draw your attention. But in the home, she saw every sibling as a competitor. So she was very aggressive toward the other children, the younger children. She was very aggressive toward me, not so much toward my husband. But um, when she became dysregulated, we talk about children having a fight, flight, or freeze response. She was a fighter, and that was very, very difficult. So a lot of screaming, a lot of aggression. Uh, She had a lot of food trauma. So she wasn't a child who hoarded so much, but when she felt hungry, she was immediately just uh, out of control because this hunger terrified her because deep within herself, I think she felt she would die. You know, I feel hungry, I might die because that's how it felt on the streets of Ethiopia. How did your other children handle all of this? Because if Mm. you've got one child who's sort of pulling all of the energy out of the family, um, what was it like for them and how did you help them? 
Well, it was very traumatizing for them. You know, some of my kids were already in college and they started staying on campus a whole lot more, even though they lived at home. Some of my children were homeschooled, but that became nearly impossible. I had friends who took over homeschooling for me. I think the hardest part was that the children who were too little to escape lived in this fear of of trauma and dysregulation all the time. And it was very hard for them because she was not our youngest. You know, I had three younger than her when she came home. So our two little boys from Ethiopia and then one of our daughters by birth were all younger. And so they were very vulnerable and we had to work hard to protect them. Um, I think it was a while before we realized how much our older children were truly suffering. I mean, we couldn't we couldn't think about it. We were just so survival mode yeah. ourselves, you know, and it, we had to go back and repair a lot of relationship hurts with mm-hmm. our older kids, but you know, they're, they're wonderful and they've, they've forgiven us for all that we didn't know and all that we didn't do. And we have a very close family now. I bet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Going into adoption, you, your eyes were open. You'd been parenting for quite a while. I mean, you're probably as, as well prepared as anybody could be for adoption. But you said when these troubles came, you still felt a little bit paralyzed. What do we do? What do we do? And then it seems to me that a real turning point for you was when you began um, listening and studying um, Dr. Purvis's teaching, Dr. Karen Purvis and her theories. Can you talk a little bit about that time and what changed for you then? Yes, I was introduced to Dr. Purvis. I was already blogging. I had started blogging in 2006 before we brought our children home. Mm-hmm. And one of my readers told me that I should read The Connected Child by Dr. Karen Purvis and Dr. David Cross. They uh, were from TCU and had developed something called trust-based relational intervention. And it was really a an intervention or a way of caring for children who'd experienced this kind of trauma. And I remember reading the book and learning so much about the fact that I there were really three key things that I had to do. They talk about we talk about the empowering principles, connecting principles, and correcting principles. And those all had to be, we had to meet all three of those different things in order to help our children heal. And you know, when I first read the book, I remember being, my eyes were really opened, but then I saw a video of Dr. Purvis teaching. Mm-hmm. And when I saw her speak, she really exuded so much hope. She loved the Lord. She has since passed away, mm-hmm. but she really loved the Lord and she was very, very gifted. And I felt so much hope from her. And I remember thinking, if she has this much hope for my kids, I'm going to hold on to her hope. Mm-hmm. I'm going to learn everything I can. Mm-hmm. And then I shared this with my husband, and we were all in with Connected Parenting. Mm-hmm. Talk about the three, if you would, the three um, strategies, if, okay. if you would, with parents. You talk about scripts, saying yes, and giving choices. And was it applying these that really helped you with your daughter, or was it something that you learned 
for, that Dr. Purvis was teaching before you began to apply these three strategies? Yes. So I learned all of those from her. And I think one of the first tools, the reason it's one of the first chapters in the book is about scripts, simplifying with scripts, is because it's one of the simplest things for parents to apply from the very beginning. Scripts are just these short, simple phrases that we use and we, we practice them with our children. We use them over and over again. And they do a couple things. One, they keep us from overloading our children with words. Mm -hmm. You know, it's yeah. really easy for parents to talk on and on, but especially when a child is dysregulated, when they're a little mm -hmm. bit upset, they can't even understand what we're saying. We have to keep it very, very simple. The other thing about scripts is the child knows exactly what it means. Mm -hmm. we're, we have shared language and that's a trust building thing too. And so they begin to know what we're saying. We keep it really short and these scripts will then help move our children toward optimal behavior and, and alter their beliefs in positive ways. So I'll give you an example. Um, Dr. Purvis would teach, you know, we need to get eye contact with our children. Well, eye contact is really, really hard if you've been harmed by people and sure. you don't trust people. So it's something we have to work on with our kids. So what she teaches is she would say, let me see your beautiful eyes and, mm -hmm. and get the child to turn their eyes toward you. And then you praise them. You say, oh, you have such beautiful eyes. And then you go on to instruct them. You know, mm -hmm. now it's time to come to the table to eat or whatever. So you gain eye contact first. We can't just toss things over our shoulder like, hey, t come to the table for dinner because our children, these children will not likely do it. Right. Right. So eye contact. The other script I still use being a mom of young teens is try that again with respect. So, mm -hmm. you know, they might say something. And I know what they're trying to say, but they're not saying in a respectful way. And it's a need that I can meet. I'll yeah. just say, hey, try that again with respect. So we use that script a lot. In the book, I have a whole lot of different scripts. Um, but they can also just be things that are something a family develops all on their own. It doesn't have to be something that we thought of. Every family's different. Mm -hmm. And so they can come up with our, their own little scripts. The giving of yeses is very important because, like we mentioned in the beginning, when a child's needs are not met, they are not receiving yeses. Like every time a parent says, oh, my child's crying, I'm going to pick them up. That's a yes. Oh, my child's hungry, I'm going to feed them. That's a yes. And so especially when parents are stressed and we're in hard circumstances with our kids, it's really easy to say no. Mm -hmm. I know for me, life felt so out of control that the last thing I could, I wanted to do was be flexible because I was scared. I was dysregulated, yeah. you know, but the giving of yeses is really important so that children understand, yes, we're going to meet your needs. And then the last one, giving choices. The reason that is really useful is it builds trust. So we, we are trusting a child that we present choices. The choices are ours to offer, but then we let them choose between one or the other. And it can be as simple as do you want to wear the red shirt today or the green shirt today? And we let them practice choosing. Do you want to have a peanut butter sandwich for lunch or do you want to have, I don't know, I can't think of turkey, um, yeah. you know, and let them choose. So all of these things are helping the child learn that their voice matters, that we're listening and we're going to meet their needs. Mm -hmm. That's hard to do when you're upset. 
And a lot of times I find, you know, these things will come up like a script will come up or a need to say yes will come up or even giving choices when you're stressed. For instance, you know, you have a two and a half year old who um, has a lot of toys all over. And this must have happened to you a lot. You have so many kids. You couldn't run around picking up and doing everything all all, all on your own, but you need them to pick the toys up. Um, and you want it done pretty quickly because you're going somewhere. So how do you, um, can you walk us through what would your script be? How do you say yes? How do you give a choice when you need them to pick up their toys? In that instance, I would probably say, and this is just off the top of my head, yeah. but I probably really And I'm putting to- you on the spot here. <laughs> That's yeah. okay. That's okay. I would probably say, Okay, it's time to pick up toys. Would you like to hand them to mommy and I'll put them in the basket or would you like to put them in the basket yourself? Mm. So I'm giving them two positive choices that are both going to end up resulting in what I want. And when I give choices, I'll hold out one hand and then the other with each choice. So the child actually has a physical representation. So I might hold out one hand and say, would you like mommy to put the toys in the basket you know you bring them to mommy or do you want to put them yourself and then the child can see that there are two options and when they're upset it wouldn't be in this instance they can just touch the hand that gives the right answer does that make sense yes yes absolutely absolutely and as you're because I know this is going to be it sounds easy but I've been in these situations enough to know that it's really really hard first of all if you're dealing with a child who's upset and ornery and doesn't want to listen and maybe they're they're yelling um, and you, you know, there are a lot of emotions that go through parents. You know, you feel like, why can't I control this child? Why is this child so unhappy? Why do they disrespect me so much and so on and so forth? You really have to have uh, some discipline, I guess, or some internal regulation to be able to stop and do this. Parents, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Lisa Qualls. We need to take a quick break, but please don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more of this conversation. Now, let's say you had your, your, we're working with your daughter. She's five or six or seven and she's having temper tantrums and you need her to take a shower and she refuses to get in the shower or you need her to go to bed or, um, I mean, just think of if you could any sort of out of control experience, or an experience where she was out of control. Um, if, a, if a child's being really hard to live with, as you talk about, how would you apply, do you need to do something before you can apply these three strategies or can you just start using them right away? Well, if a child is already distressed and dysregulated and a little out of control, I I don't think that's the time probably to use most of these. Really, your only goal at that point, first of all, is to keep everyone safe if this is turning into a big thing. Mm-hmm. But secondly, It's to try to bring the child close and use your calm, regulated state, which you may not feel, and it takes some work, lots of breathing and calming, and Mm -hmm. try to use your calm to bring them into calm regulation Mm -hmm. with you. So, you know, at the end of the day with a child who's really challenging, you might just have to let go of that shower. It may not happen because you cannot... We. 
you know, especially with older teens and things, we cannot physically pick up a child and put them in the no. shower. Yeah. So we have to decide what is really important here. And mm -hmm. really what's most important is relationship. There are some things that we cannot um, just let go, obviously, yeah. but we want to focus on the relationship, let go of everything that's not truly important, and then really prioritize what are we going to expect of that child. Yeah. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. And I think we overcomplicate things a lot. Yes. One of the things I see is a lot of parents are short on time. You know, they're working outside the house, they're getting their kids off to daycare at 630 in the morning, and the child doesn't want to go and they don't want to, you know, you can sense where I'm going here. Mm -hmm. But what really what you're talking about takes some time and some calm and some energy, you, you can't just do it on the fly. And, um, do these strategies and principles work with non-adoptive kids as well? Do they work with, say, a teenager that's lived in your home um, but is going through some kind of crisis when they're 14 or 15 years old and they're just out of control? Would, would you approach that child the same way you would with an adoptive child who has an attachment disorder? I would. I would because really every healthy relationship is built on the foundation of trust and connection. And so, you know, I've parented a lot of kids now and a lot of teens, and I really try to keep the relationship and the connection at the heart of my interactions. I fail all the time, you know, because like you said, this is exhausting. It's it is, really yeah. hard. This is very intense parenting. And, um, and when kids go through a hard season, whether they're born to us or adopted, it's going to take a lot out of us. And yeah. we will have to, like, I had to dramatically change my life. And the things I thought were important, really, a lot of those had to go because I was in the trenches of parenting my kids. Mm -hmm. And I'm thankful that I was able to do that, that I was mm -hmm. able to be home with them. But yes, I think all of these principles of building relationship on trust and attachment work for all children. And in fact, they work for marriage too. Ah, that's a whole nother show. <laughs> Another show, yes. It would make sense because I think the whole idea of scripts is so important because one of the things that I see with well-intentioned, loving parents who are very educated often try to explain to their kids that can't handle what they're trying to explain. And it ends up frustrating the child. I've seen parents in grocery stores with three-year-olds who, you know, want, you know, a a sugary cereal and they don't want to buy it and explaining to the child why they can't have it and how bad it is for them. And, and the child's just getting madder and madder. So I, I think that you're very smart. And, you know, for parents and families to come up with a handful of scripts that they use over and over. Um, you talk about saying yes. And Obviously, there are times when you need to say no to a child, you know, when when they're in danger or something. So you're not always saying, say yes. You're saying, say yes to the big things whenever you can. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Say, I think say yes whenever you can. And even if you have to give a no, if you can start it with a yes, it helps. Like the child says, you know, um, I want to stay up late tonight and watch this show. You can say you know, Friday night, you can stay up late and we'll watch that show together. But mm -hmm. tonight it's bedtime, you know, yeah. so try to 
try to meet that need that they have, even if you cannot give a yes in the moment. Yeah, yeah. Boy, that's great. <laughs> that's really <laughs> great. I wish I'd known all this when my kids were younger. But oh, you know, oh, me too. <laughs> a lot, a lot of it. You know, you're so exhausted as a young parent and you don't, you're losing sleep and you're worried you're doing the wrong thing. Talk about personality because we hear a lot, particularly today, that kids really are sort of born, um, very moldable. And, and what we want is to have these children. I call them gray kids. You know, they wear gray. They don't wear pink or blue. Um, you dress them in gray to let them sort of pick their way. But I think if you apply that to a larger sense, how much does personality play? Uh, because you've, you have so many kids. Obviously, it's not just about parenting, but don't you think some kids are easier to parent than other kids because of their personality? Or do you think their personality really comes uh, about by the way they've been parented? Oh, nature versus nurture. You're yeah. giving me a tough question here. Mm -hmm. I think that children are born very unique. Like mm -hmm. God makes us all different. We are wired differently. I think, I mean, with my kids I gave birth to, they grew up in the same environment, same parents, and I have a wide variety of mm -hmm. personalities, of interests. Of I mean, I've got a child who is uh, a physician. I've got another child who's a writer, you know, and they yeah. have the same parents. So, and I have some kids who were easily consoled and easygoing and other kids who were not. Mm -hmm. And those are just the kids born to me. Yeah. So I, I think we... We want to give an optimal environment for our kids to develop into the people God wants them to be mm -hmm. and to become, you know, as, as healthy as possible. But they're, we can't, they're not, um, they're not blank slates. They come mm -hmm. to us who, as who they are. And children who come to us through adoption, you know, they have a whole other, um, history in their lives, especially if they didn't come as newborns. So they're coming with a whole lot of personality and a lot of experiences before we ever set our eyes on them. Yeah. I, I'm thinking of my own kids and, and as well, I, I think, you know, our oldest is so very different from our youngest. And, um, you know, some kids, it seemed to me, are just born um, with a harder time with life, they're more explosive. Uh, mm -hmm. Other kids, as you say, they're very sen they're sensitive, they're easy to console, they're very gentle. And you think, well, what am I doing differently between these two kids? But sometimes you're not doing anything differently, do you think? Or are you? Well, we do respond to our children. So as mm -hmm. much as we'd like to say we don't do anything differently, we probably do because we're human, you know? Mm -hmm. So that child who's super easy, it's easy to keep our tone light. It's easy to be relaxed around them. And, and that shows in mm -hmm. our bodies and in the way we move and talk. Kids who are harder, it's hard not to just be a little edgier, right? And a little less tolerant because we're thinking, oh boy, where is this about to go? You know? And, and again, I'm talking about just my kids by birth. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, yeah. the great thing is they grow up yeah. and they really become incredible people, even if they were hard when they were younger. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You know, and that's, and that's, that's what I saw. I saw each of them sort of turn a corner at some point. Um, 
in my life. My guest has been Lisa Qualls. Her book, which is amazing, is called The Connected Parent, Real Life Strategies for Building Trust and Attachment. It's brand new, hot off the press. She wrote it with the late um, Dr. Karen Purvis, and it is fabulous. Whether you have a child who's been adopted, whether you're foster parenting uh, some kids, or whether your kids are your biologic children, really the principles and strategies in this book work for all children. And I just can't recommend it highly enough. It is really a fabulous book for every parent, no matter how old your kids are, to read. I'm still learning. And I I feel like I'm starting over again in a way with our grandkids, trying not to make the mistakes I did with our kids. One thing I am finding, however, is the second time around, obviously, they're not my children. I'm so much calmer. I, 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 you know, I, I, I really, um, you just don't worry about things because you know, okay, they're having a temper tantrum. Just wait it out. It's going to be okay. Um, but it's really hard. And, and, uh, so I appreciate your work so much, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Now on to my points to ponder. One, use scripts not long sentences. One of the mistakes that parents frequently make, and I include myself, is over-explaining things to our kids, particularly when it comes to telling them what to do. Scripts are short two to three words that summarize what you want your child to do. For instance, if you tell your four-year-old to get dressed and she won't, look her in the eye and say, you need to listen and obey. Don't say you need to get dressed because it's cold outside and when you go to preschool, your teacher won't like it if you have your PJs on. Or if your three-year-old hits his sister, you intervene and simply say, no, we don't do that. You could say, please don't hit your sister because it will make her feel badly. In our family, we don't hurt each other because that makes the other person angry and hurt. And you don't want anybody else in the family to be angry and hurt, particularly your sister. Two, say yes as often as you can. Saying yes makes a child feel more connected to a parent and it gives them more self-confidence. However, saying yes does not mean letting the child do anything she wants. It simply means putting a yes in answers that you give. For instance, when your eight-year-old hates school, rather than say, sorry, you just need to keep going, it will get better, you can say, yes, I understand. I'll ask your teacher to help. Would you like me to speak to her alone or would you like to go with me? This makes a child feel heard and respected. Three, give your child choices that you like. When you ask your child to do something, particularly something that you think he won't want to do, it helps him obey if you let him choose between two choices. For instance, if you need your child to get dressed for school in the morning, ask him, do you want to have breakfast first and then get dressed or get dressed before you have breakfast. This makes the child answer and take charge of getting dressed. Plus, he can't squirm out of getting dressed or having breakfast because you didn't give him the option to do neither one. 
Parents, you know I love answering your questions. I'm going to do special podcasts where all I do is answer your questions. Please email me any parenting question to askmeg at megmeekermd.com. Again, askmeg at megmeekermd.com. I want to thank my guest, Lisa Qualls, for joining me on the show today. To find out more about Lisa, go to onethankfulmom.com. That's onethankfulmom.com. Be sure to follow Lisa on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for One Thankful Mom in your internet browser. So let's recap my points to ponder. One, use scripts, not long sentences. Two, say yes as often as you can. Three, give your child choices. So until next time, parents, always remember that great kids are raised, not born. Hey, this is Bobby, producer of Meg Meeker's Parenting Great Kids podcast. Thanks for listening. And because of your dedication to raising great kids, Dr. Meg's Parenting Revolution has grown to over 3 million downloads. Head on over to Facebook and Twitter and follow at Meg Meeker MD and check out what's new at MegMeeker.com. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter to stay updated and get information about giveaways. Don't forget to share the podcast with other parents. Subscribe so you won't miss anything and leave us a review so we know how we're doing.